You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. And that music means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. And this is Lois Richter in Davis, California. Happy New Year, Don. Happy New Year to you and all of our listeners. And you did not begin with it's a bright, beautiful day here in the Sacramento Valley because it ain't. <laughs> it was- you know, I say that for like like nine months. A bright, beautiful, sunny Davis day. It's well, been- it's winter. It's been true right through December this year, but right now we woke up to pretty dense morning fog the last couple of days. We've had a little bit of rain. It's still overcast, and the temperature on the date of recording of this broadcast right now is 41 degrees here. With humidity at 93%, the fog lifting, the clouds look like they're trying to part. So I look out my window, there are crows and magpies fighting over perches in the oak tree out there. So it might become a sunny winter day in just a few moments, but so far pretty drizzly. And there's a slight chance of showers today, which is Wednesday, 52 degrees is going to be our high and 39 will be below tonight with areas of fog. And it's been dense fog in the morning. Thursday, it'll be 55 degrees, the date of the broadcast. Thursday night, another chance of showers. So we're only going to drop down to 43 degrees at night. Friday, chance of showers, 59 degrees. Partly sunny by the end of the day. Friday night, partly cloudy, patchy fog dropping into about 38 degrees. Saturday, patchy fog, mostly sunny, 57 degrees. Saturday night, 35 degrees because it's going to clear up a bit more, just partly cloudy. Fog in the morning on Sunday with another high of about 57. Our rainfall to date for the water average water year is about um, 24% here in the Sacramento Valley, most areas. I had someone ask me about chilling hours. How we're doing with all these sunny days seemed like we wouldn't really be on track, but in fact we are. We've had in the Davis area, according to the fruitsandnuts.ucdavis.edu site, which is a great repository of fruit tree information, including weather data, Davis has had 472 chilling hours to date. If we follow the typical pattern of a year where we're at that point at this time, uh, we'll probably end up with about 800 chilling hours for the winter, which is enough for pretty much everything that we grow in this area. And uh, the chilling portions, which is the other way of looking at it, that accounts for those spikes of warmer temperatures, we are at about uh, 30, which is about exactly where we typically would be at this time of year. So we're on track for the chilling hours and the chilling portions, which means the deciduous fruit trees are getting what they need to flower properly, set fruit properly, and give an adequate harvest. But are they getting enough water? No. <laughs> no, they're not. And uh, now? Well, I mean, most farmers locally who have orchards are not irrigating in the case of almonds or anything like that. I did see late December uh, walnut growers were irrigating. And that's very unusual, but they're very concerned that drought stress on walnuts when they're dormant, as I've mentioned before, leads to much lower yields the fall, you know, that coming summer. Much less of an issue, it seems, with almonds and the other trees that are in the area. Those are the two prevalent tree crops here in the Sacramento Valley at this point. So I don't think home gardeners need to irrigate established trees at this time, since they're dormant. But if you've just planted something, 
you bought a bare root fruit tree, for example, and planted it, you presumably watered it in to settle the soil. In years past, before we had the major drought in the early part of this last decade, we would tell people uh, before that drought, we would say, just water once and then wait till it buds out before you need to water again. Then we went into a five-year drought. We had two years where there was basically no rainfall in January. And bare root didn't do real well that year if they'd just been planted. So we took to telling people, okay, once a week, if it isn't raining, please go ahead and water the tree, even though it's not growing, even though we don't see anything happening, just to keep it from literally drying out because those were pretty severe periods of anywhere from five to six weeks without rainfall. So a newly planted plant, you need to keep your eye on. Some of your things in containers. I had people coming in with raised vegetable planters wondering why their plants weren't doing well. And I said, did you check the soil? And we haven't had enough rain to really keep that, that fancy soil you put in your raised planters hydrated. You may need to water. And it seems odd that we'd have to be watering in January, but sometimes that happens when we go two, three, four weeks without significant rainfall. All right, so we have a lot of questions this week, and I'm going to start with a sad one. A sad one. Ah. Uh, this is from PJ. Any recommendations on how to treat Drosophila fly larva in sweet cherries? Oh. Last year, 2% of my cherries had this pest. I'm afraid it may get worse this season. Yeah, it will get worse. Um, this, we, I get asked periodically for an update about this pest. Drosophila is, if you remember your, your organism names, is a fruit fly. And this particular fruit fly showed up in California in 2009, I think it was, 2010. It was everywhere. When it first came in, we didn't think it could possibly be affecting fruit the way it was because that isn't how fruit flies work. It was attacking laying its eggs in and causing wriggling worms in fruit as it was ripening, not after it was ripe. This wasn't like when you leave fruit on your counter and it gets full of wriggly worms and fruit flies are in your kitchen. Those are fruit flies that are attacking rotting fruit. This was attacking the fruit before, just as it was softening, you know, just as you'd be picking it to eat it or send it to the, to the market. And uh, by the time the state identified Drosophila suzuki, a native of Japan that came to us apparently by way of Hawaii, which showed up in the Watsonville area on red raspberries first, and then the cherries in the Stockton area less than an hour away, very quickly the same season. By the time they identified it, it was in every cherry growing region in California. Presumably, since they can't fly that far, presumably carried by people on fruit, on fruit that appeared to be ripe and firm, but in fact had the eggs of the spotted wing drosophila in it. Initially, it was called cherry vinegar fly. The um, folks who make vinegar didn't like that name. So they decided to appropriately call it spotted wing drosophila, referring to the fact that it has a distinct spot on each wing. That's great if you're happening to try to identify it, you know, you know the, the traps that you've set out there. But anywhere that cherries are grown now in the United States, we watched as this spread from California to Oregon, to Washington, to Michigan, to all the other places in the United States that grow cherries. It is now a major pest of cherries everywhere they're grown. It also attacks other soft fruit if it isn't too warm when they're ripening. So we're very lucky in some ways that here in the Sacramento Valley in California and areas in interior Southern California, it's too warm after about the end of May for this fruit fly to keep reproducing. So it doesn't attack the other soft fruits that it potentially could attack, including everything in your orchard, ranging from peaches to plums to persimmons, you name it. We get above about 85 degrees, which is when the, the fruit fly basically stops reproducing by late May. And so that's the end of the problem. But we typically are growing cherries that ripen 
in the month of May. So it's become a major problem on them. It will get worse once you have it. And personally, as a nursery owner, I consider spotted wing drosophila an unmanageable pest for home gardeners, which is why I no longer sell cherry trees at my garden center in Davis. I have to explain this many times every winter to people who come in looking for a cherry. I simply don't want them to buy a cherry or two and take them home and plant them and come back three or four years later when they start fruiting and saying, hey, they're all full of warmth. It's really gross, by the way. It's not, this is not like a worm in your apple where you can cut around it. I'm talking about a cherry, which is how big, an inch, having, eight, yeah, having eight or 10 wriggling larvae in it, making it <laughs> disgusting. Yeah, it's gross. Uh, <laughs> simple way to test for their presence, if you're buying ripe cherries, put them in a bowl, fill the bowl with water. So there's a couple of inches of water above the cherries. And within, oh, just a few hours, the worms will come out of the fruit and float to the top. I'm guessing you probably won't at that point eat those cherries. But the commercial application is two to four sprays with either something like spinosad, which is an organic but broad spectrum insecticide, or something that is not organic, of which they have a variety of options. Two to four applications as the fruit is ripening. So every cherry that you that stuff. What's that? It means you're going to eat that, whatever you put on it. Yeah, well, pesticide residues are regulated by various regulate, you know, various departments like the Department of Pesticide Regulation in California, and they tell the growers be very cautious, follow the label very carefully, so you don't exceed the residue tolerances for pesticides on cherries. But even organically grown cherries are sprayed with an organic pesticide, which is on there, spinosad, and it's not harmless; it's just organic. So most home gardeners, in my experience, two issues. One, most of them don't really want to do that kind of spraying. Two, cherries are big trees. And uh, most home gardeners have a little tank sprayer. They're just going to stand there down below the tree, spraying sort of ineffectually up into the tree. They're not going to get good coverage. A commercial grower has a spray rig that makes a fog of insecticide that completely surrounds the tree and gets very good coverage and very good results. So if you buy cherries in the grocery store, very high likelihood they won't have these worms in them. We'll have pesticide residues, but they won't have the worms in them. So be sure to wash them, but at least you won't be full of wriggling fruit fly larvae. Um, home gardeners just don't get good control. And uh, I don't think there's any, I haven't seen any evidence of anything on the market that's going to work better for home gardeners. There's been some research, obviously I've been following this since it showed up for you know 12 years now, that if you prune the tree to a more open growth habit, it reduces the population just because they spread more slowly. They really, really build up on tight packed mass you know, clusters of fruit. Uh, one fruit immediately, the others are infested very quickly, whereas a more open tree, it doesn't hit them as quickly. So you get maybe 40% less worms, but you still got plenty of worms. So from a commercial standpoint, that's not really an answer. Um, I did find that to be the case on my trees before I took them out. The one that was more densely pruned got fully infested faster than the one that was pruned more openly. But there's one option that has worked for home gardeners, which is to cover the tree, which sounds a little absurd until you think about the ways you might be able to do this. One is to buy a tree that's a slow-growing, dwarf-ish tree and try to find it on a slower-growing, dwarfish rootstock and uh, prune it down low from the start and grow it like a cherry bush, a very small tree. Then it might be actually possible to build a simple little frame around it or something and cover it with the same kind of material we use as frost blanket very securely. And when they've done this, this was done by some of the cooperative extension folks that manage the, uh, the public garden out at Fair Oaks Community Garden here in the Sacramento area. 
uh, they got very good control. You got to do it before there's any color on the fruit at all, before just as they're beginning to turn uh, kind of straw colored from the, the white. And uh, you cover the tree completely with it and you leave it on for the three weeks or so that it takes the fruit to ripen. And they got very, very good control that way. So if you can keep the tree small enough, that's an option. So you go out and you buy Craig's Crimson Variety, a naturally dwarf cherry, on Colt rootstock, a tree rootstock that grows much more slowly than regular, and you head it and you do summer pruning to keep it like a bush and you cover it when the fruit's ripening, you might, if you're willing to go to all that trouble, get some ripe cherries. If you've got a big old cherry tree in your backyard, you can just take that same kind of frost blanket and go look at the tree and find a couple of the branches that are down low enough for you to do this, wrap them completely as the fruit is beginning to ripen, long before it turns color. I mean, be, uh, when it's just beginning to turn what they call straw colored, take that same frost blanket, wrap a branch completely, secure it with clothes pins or whatever works. So anything that'll keep a fruit fly out. And people have done this and gotten at least one branch of acceptable fruit that doesn't have any worms in it. And then finally, as you're picking the fruit, if you don't want to go to all this trouble, Look at it closely, because if it has been oviposited, if the fruit fly has made a point of entry for the eggs, there's a little dimple there. If the fruit is completely perfect, there's no larva in it. You can go ahead and eat that one. So inspect if you wish, if that's the way you want to go. No other answer, so they're very challenging. So what do the, what do the fruit flies do if you exclude them from the tree, okay, so I've, I've got a situation, I had a tree, it had the fruit flies, this year I exclude the fruit flies, are, are the fruit flies going to die because they don't have any cherries, or are they going to be uh, still around so that I have to do this cover thing every year? The population will, will diminish, but will never go away. And there are other things in your yard that they hypothetically can attack. They can, for example, be a problem on blueberries, uh, raspberries, blackberries, but they have a very strong preference for red colored fruit. That's been observed. I mean, people who have a, the pale white or light pink cherries next to their regular red cherries will notice that they're way more infested on the red cherries. Not zero on the others, but, but way less of a problem. In fact, as I said, the first place it showed up was on red raspberries. So for those of you listening in places where berries are grown near cherries, that has been a big issue in terms of getting control of the fly on either particularly red, red raspberries, much less of a problem on blackberries, but if there's sufficient moisture, they really do require moisture. I mean, the management strategies, which you can read about that commercial orchards use, typically involve absolutely clean bare orchard floor, no irrigation as the tree fruit is ripening, maintenance of all nearby areas to keep the, uh, the berries and things from invading and providing a repository of the population. And, uh, uh, you know, basically avoiding plenty of moisture. We don't get a problem. I've never had a problem with them on my blackberries because we're so dry by the time those are ripening that they just can't sustain themselves. So reducing the moisture, reducing the secondary hosts that could be a problem can be a, a part of the management strategy. But I don't think that most home gardeners are going to be able to implement those strategies because they typically have their cherries in a mixed area of other things. They don't have a bare, clean orchard floor. That does help. So you can manage the population. And yes, the individuals will, you know, they'll finish their life cycle without having managed to successfully oviposit. But I wouldn't want you to think it's going to be 100%. So they'll come back. I mean, it took them quite a while. It took them about three years after everybody else got them for them to show up on my trees because I'm way far away from anybody else. But somehow, probably because there's a fruit stand around the corner from us, somehow they made their way to my trees. And once they did, 
they gradually infested them to the point that within the second year of my finding them, I was getting 80% of the fruit infested and I solved the problem with a chainsaw. So I don't really think cherries are, you know, they went from being, I used to have this, this chart, it's on my website, of how easy it is on a scale of one to five to get fruit from a particular type of tree because we have all these things we tell people about, but the real question is, you know, how easy is it to get a peach, a good peach? How easy is it to get plums and so on? Which fruit are five? Easiest thing in the world, just plant them and wait. Figs, persimmons, pomegranates, you don't have to do anything at all. Cherries went from five, among the easiest fruit, to zero. The only zero on my list, because it is nearly impossible for a home gardener to get completely clean fruit from a cherry into their, you know, to go out and harvest and take into the house. So they went all the way to the other end of the scale, unfortunately. If you're willing to do all that stuff that I talked about, grow it like a bush, cover it, blah, 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 go for it. And be sure you get a self-fruitful one uh, like Craig's Crimson. It's worth a try. I always have people who can't believe there's no solution to this other than repeated spraying. And uh, there is. There's one solution, which is exclusion. So when this first came some years ago when you were talking, you were saying something about uh, the temperature or the time at which it was ripening and sour cherries versus sweet cherries. Can you review that for us? We thought initially that pie cherries, because they ripened later, would be exempt, would be safe from this particular spotted wing drosophila, but it wasn't late enough. Uh, yeah, they'll, they will attack any soft fruit, particularly red ones, but others certainly. But what it happens is in the mid-80s, temperatures in the mid-80s, essentially, the, the, they become sterile. So they no longer can multiply, which is true of a lot of insects, by the way. They have a particular temperature range. And once the entomologists have figured out what that temperature range is, well, I suppose you could plant a much later ripening cherry if there was one that, that would bypass the whole thing. So in my first article, I said... Pie cherries may still be an option because they ripen later and immediately got a reply from someone. Just want to let you know, Don, I have two Montmorency pie cherries. I'm removing them because of spotted wing drosophila. So that answer anecdotally was quickly nullified. That's <laughs> sorry to say. All right, that's enough on a depressing topic. Let's move on. <laughs> okay, so let me, uh, let me read another email. This is from George. Yep. Uh, hi, Don. Maybe it is not in the category of gophers and white-crowned sparrows, <laughs> but I have heard some negativity from you about Bradford pears. I have a big unruly one that I would like to get rid of. The tree itself is a nuisance, and I would like to replace it with something bearing edible fruit. Uh, do you think that would be a better course, or should I try to get it pruned? Well, you will need to get it pruned if you're going to keep it, no question. And a tree service will tell you that they'll need to visit that Bradford pear maybe not every year, but probably every other year. If you have large maturing trees in your property, they should be on a regular visit cycle from an arborist to assess them for hazard and safety and, and disease and pest problems. The Bradford pear is well known. Uh, it's the first of the Calariana pears that came on the market, widely, widely planted. Does not form good reaction wood, meaning to say a branch is not well supported by wood that would prevent it from breaking. And so if there's high wind or ice storms in places where those things occur, within about 20 years of their being planted, starting in the 1960s, or by the 80s, we were seeing the articles, not a great tree for urban forests and all this kind of thing. And uh, then... Back east, uh, they began to realize that ooh, all the Calariana pears reseed. And uh, back there where they have enough rainfall, they reseed and the seedlings are thorny. 
and uh, crowd out all other vegetation. It's become an unpleasantly invasive plant and pretty much anywhere east of the Mississippi. We're kind of too dry out here for that to happen, except on a very limited basis. But in spite of these apparent drawbacks of Bradford, a bunch of other varieties came on the market that they would tout as being better in one way or another than Bradford. Better branch angles, aristocrat bear. Hey, look, it gets fire blight uh, and mistletoe. Uh, there's one street out in West Davis, which was alternating Bradford and aristocrat pears, and it was quite lovely. They have beautiful fall color. They have very pretty flowers that smell politely like wet socks, um, and, but it, they were pretty. All of them are gone. All of them are gone. They either started falling apart, or they got mistletoe very badly, or they got fire blight, and the city just decided bit by bit to take them all out and replace them with something else. Capital, Chanticleer, Cleveland Select, I mean, a bunch of other varieties came on the market. None of them are things that we as nursery people should be selling at this point. The branch angles are bad, they break apart, it's a high maintenance tree. I strongly urge people to remove them. And unfortunately I have to throw in the issue that when you do take them out, you will probably spend a season getting rid of suckers that come up from the roots here and there because Calariana pears do form small thickets if they're allowed to. So keep after those suckers. In fact, within about a year, you'll be, be rid of it. I just don't see any point in keeping one if it's more than about 15 years old, it's just gonna become more and more expensive to manage it. And even still branches have a likelihood of splitting out some of our famous north winds here in the Sacramento Valley. So, you know, it'll probably cost you as much to have it removed as one year's pruning. And then imagine that every imagine that every other year for the you know for as long as you decide to keep it. So if he gets rid of it, which I agree with you, I out shovel and gone. Yeah. But what would be good to replace that with? Something that might have edible fruit. You yeah, had your your number fives, your easy grow things. Well, the easiest, yeah. I mean, we mentioned, we mentioned two in particular, figs and persimmons, if you have a place for them. Bear in mind, you know, a big fruit tree is going to be dropping fruit. So I have an enormous persimmon, 30 feet tall, and this year it had, I don't know, five or 600 fruit on it. I can't reach most of them because I've let it get as big as it wanted. You don't have to do that. You can keep them shorter. I have figs on the property that are 40 by 40. They shower us with fruit more than anyone, even an avid fig lover could possibly eat. So if you're thinking of doing a, a fig, look for something like blackjack, which is a naturally more dwarf tree, or go ahead and prune them. They take very, very well to pruning and they're lovely, very interesting tropical looking trees that really make a nice feature in the garden. Persimmons are beautiful at every stage. The, the flush of growth in the spring is bright chartreuse. They have really pretty leaves. The fall color is great and the fruit is very attractive. But again, fruit litter may be a factor. And uh, you could prune a persimmon, but it's you, if you don't, it'll get about 30 feet, I can tell you from experience. One of the nicest fruit trees of the fruiting, you know, normal fruits is the weeping Santa Rosa plum. It's a regular Santa Rosa plum. It is a naturally occurring sport, as we call it, naturally occurring mutation. Came along probably 30 or more years ago with an arching weeping growth habit instead of the very upright growth habit. And I have one that I've had in the ground for about three decades now. It's a very attractive focal point. The tree looks like a weeping flowering cherry, the, you know, that kind of look, if you know what that looks like. The difference being it has really pretty white flowers, massive of them in the spring for about a week. And then it sets very large crops 
of a Santa Rosa plum. It's just another form of Santa Rosa. So it's self-fruitful. You get a whole lot of fruit in about a week that you better deal with. As you know, you know, plums come and go, they're done typically, most varieties. But it's got it's just a lovely landscape feature. And it occasionally reverts. So you'll see a branch come out that grows real upright. You better prune that out or else you'll just have a regular old Santa Rosa. But it's just one of the ornamental fruit trees. And then a couple of the peaches we like to talk about all the time, Red Baron, spectacular bloom, very, very, very high quality fruit. It's an outstanding one. It only needs a couple hundred chilling hours. So people listening in warmer winter areas can certainly grow Red Baron. And here in the Valley, one that's been around for a long time is a form of Alberta, which is the classic California peach called Fantastic Alberta. And what makes it fantastic is it has very showy flowers as well as the nice fruit. So there's a couple that would just be a real garden or landscape feature as well as having the fruit that we would benefit from. So the Weeping Santa Rosa, I would say, is probably one of the more carefree. Train it a bit, prune out crossing branches, figure out what you're going to do with several hundred Santa Rosa plums every year. Other than that, it doesn't require a lot of special attention. Peaches, of course, you know, you do have to prune, uh, and they do get peach leaf curled. But the other two that I mentioned, figs, persimmons, as I like to joke, plant them and wait. That's pretty much all you have to do. You're welcome to prune them, but you don't have to do it. Well, just as a little side note, if anyone is listening and they have a fruit tree, which when it comes in, there's too much fruit for them to use or give to their neighbors or whatever, uh, we do have opportunities to share our fruit with folks who need food. Yep. And so it, when it's that time, we'll talk about what the opportunities are that year. Uh, two years ago, a crew came out and took all the rest of the, the plums, hundreds of pounds. It was amazing. Uh, this year- I actually, I actually wrote that down because I have so many Satsuma mandarins that I'm trying to figure out what to do with them. And the name of the organization is here is Community Harvest of Davis. You just do a right. Google search for Community Harvest of Davis and there's community harvest organizations in a lot of places. So you can find something like that in any of a number of locations where they'll come in and they'll They'll harvest for you and give it to people who will make use of it. And they'll give and you during, a receipt for it. During the pandemic, they didn't, you know, they can't have a crew come out because the crews come from different families. And so uh, what they had then is they said, we can't come and pick it for you. But if you pick it, mm -hmm. you can put the box at your, at your, you know, call us and we'll arrange a pickup time. And they came and took the boxes away from the driveway. And so we got the fruit to the folks who needed it even though it's not standard last year. My understanding is that they now have methods for doing that, but that's gonna vary by region. So check it out locally. But yeah, if you've, if you've ever had a, a Satsuma Mandarin with 800 fruit on it, that's a lot of mandarins. Even if you really, really, really like them, that's a lot of mandarins. And that's where we're at this year with a couple of our trees. So, all right, next topic. Okay, so a couple of times you have mentioned dwarf trees, dwarfing, yeah all that sort of stuff. So we have an email here from Kathy, who lives in Davis. Uh, Hi, Don and Lois. Thanks so much for your show. I learn something new every week from listening to you. Thank you. I'm thinking about adding small fruit trees to my garden. Fine Gardening Magazine has an article, see attachment, about trees grown on dwarf rootstock. I'm also reading about techniques to prune semi-dwarf trees to keep them small. The super dwarf trees seem easier to maintain, but they aren't resistant to peach leaf curl and require more water. What has been your experience? And before you answer, I want to say that I did read this article, and when she's talking about super dwarf trees, the problem 
seemed to be to me that the roots are growing so slowly that they're not anchoring the tree very well. And Correct. so they, they fall over and they have problems other than just peach leaf curl and needing water. And of course the water is because the, the roots are so small they can't take up things. Yeah, so I mean, let's start with what's a dwarfing rootstock and do we care? Yeah, this is, there's actually several different things in this question because um, the, the, when I talk about dwarfing rootstocks, one of the things I really want to get home to my customers who are coming in asking about them is you control the size of the tree, generally speaking, not the rootstock. Rootstocks usually usually just make the tree grow more slowly. I mentioned that mandarin I was talking about. My mandarins that are now nearly 30 years old are on the dwarfingest rootstock that Four Winds growers had at the time that they called their true dwarf citrus. And I have uh, eight or 10 of these trees and two of them I let grow however they wanted. They're closest to the county road. That's where people would come off the road and steal the fruit. So I thought, what the heck, you know, just leave them there, let them do whatever they want. Those trees, I just did a more or less of an accurate measurement based on their shadow pattern using the old technique that foresters use, are approximately 15 by 15 feet. That's a true dwarf citrus, 15 by 15 feet. What makes it really dwarf is it took 30 years to get that big. I also have six others of the exact same variety on the exact same rootstock. And several years into it, as they were growing, they got about my height, a little taller, I'm six foot four, I took the center out. So they would spread more than grow up. Those trees, same variety, same rootstock, same watering, same exposure, are about eight by eight. Okay, so I controlled the size of them. Ultimately, allowed to grow their normally their normal way, they'd all be as big as a regular Satsuma mandarin on any other rootstock. It doesn't control the ultimate height of the tree. It controls how fast it gets there. That's in the case of dwarfing rootstocks of various types. There is one exception, and this was an important part of the article. Apples, for many years, have been grown for home gardeners primarily, obviously not for orchards, on these special rootstocks that were developed that were very, very dwarfing. And they are, as you note, unstable. They're not terribly strong roots to begin with, but some of the mauling rootstocks, which came from a particular fruit research station, dwarfed the tree so much that you could keep it as a little bush, even keep it in a pot. These are incredibly popular in England, where you know people have small lot sizes, they want an apple in the backyard, that's the way to do it. You can have a little, I've seen pictures of these, these little apple bushes producing you know, significant numbers of apples considering the size of the plant. The fruit is the same size as normal, it's not, it doesn't dwarf the fruit. And the thing to remember with apples is they'll fruit on a spur, a short little shoot that fruits in the same place year after year after year for many years. So once you have a little bush of a certain size, you can keep pruning it like a bush, you'll still get plenty of apples. In the case of the miniature trees, totally different beast. These are what we used to call genetic dwarf fruit trees. That name fell out of favor because of the, uh, the percentage of the population who don't like genetic modification or GMOs. They aren't that, it's a naturally occurring tighter internode distance. You remember when we talked about nodes and internodes, average peach has an internode distance of several inches. These have an internode distance of less than an inch. And uh, that was a naturally occurring mutation, spontaneous mutation, which occurs a lot in fruit trees. And so finding this, realizing it was stable, efforts were made to breed it in to create varieties that are miniature. So the, the miniature variety has got its own name, it's its own type, honey bay, pixie, bonanza, 
And they were introduced first as sort of novelties for the backyard. And they turn into a shrub because they grow six to 12 inches a year. Had a customer who had a rose garden. She wanted one, a, a peach tree. She didn't have a place for a peach tree. She had a place for a peach bush. So she put it down at the end of the rose garden, made a lovely little accent, and she got nice quality, pretty good quality. Scale of 10, rating of a six, shall we say, quality fruit on this miniature peach. She liked it. She could go out and pick a peach from her backyard. This isn't your real Oso gem, your Alberta, your, you know, it's not a nine or a 10, but they're fun. They're easy to grow. Is it on its own roots or is that uh, cyan and uh, grafted? It's a it's normal graft, cyan and rootstock, and the roots are normal. When I pull these out of this, I, we always sell a few of them every year. They're a little hard to get this year, but you pull it out of the shavings, and there's these roots that are three feet across. The roots aren't dwarf at all. So this is a case where the top is naturally dwarf. It's put on a normal, strong root system. So it's a complete opposite of what was being described with the apples. The roots are very sturdy, and the plants are easy to grow. No, they're not resistant to peach leaf curl, but that's not a huge issue. You still get plenty of fruit. Hey, it's a lot easier to spray them. Uh, this lady sprayed hers with a little spritzer bottle. I mean, the thing was only four feet tall. She could get out there and spray with a prevention for peach leaf curl without any difficulty at all and get good coverage. Uh, so they were fine, but they aren't as high quality as, you know, a good old well-known peach variety that you just control by pruning. And so we get the phrase that Don, as emperor of the world of horticulture, intends to ban on punishment of banishment from the kingdom, which is the word semi-dwarf. Semi-dwarf is a very frustrating term because people think it means they won't have to prune. No, it just means the tree will grow two to three feet a year instead of three to five feet a year. You still have to prune it. You still have to prune it for size control and for fruit reduction and balance and structure. It just makes a naturally smaller tree. I'm not a huge fan of semi-dwarf rootstocks, the most common out there being Citation, widely introduced and still used heavily by Dave Wilson Nursery, the main purveyor of fruit trees. Um, in my opinion, its semi-dwarf characteristic seems to be from just drought stress. It's not a very drought tolerant rootstock in my own experience. I'd rather have a nice tree on a sturdy rootstock that you go out in the summer and prune like a hedge. It's easy to do. People are scared of pruning and they needn't be. It's not difficult. It doesn't even require a lot of horticultural skill to do the summer pruning. And so that's the really the technique that has, in my opinion, eliminated the need for semi-dwarf rootstocks is summer pruning. You just go out after you've harvested, after the main cycle of growth is done, you prune the tree down for size control in the summer. Your kid can do it. doesn't require any special skill. And then you do a little light pruning in the winter for structural reasons, and you keep it whatever height you want. But the miniatures can be fun. And if you're very limited for space, if you're listening in, say, the new development in Davis called the Cannery, which uh, they're all solar homes. They're not allowed to plant any trees. Well, these little miniature peaches or bushes, you know, so you can have one of those. And it's cool. And they have pretty flowers. And, you know, you have your own fruit in your backyard. I just don't want you to think this is going to be as good a fruit as your O'Henry, Alberta, Rioso gem, you know, those classic peaches that are really outstanding to grow in your backyard. So you're talking peaches. Yep. And what about plums? Do they have the same, are there plums that are the, the naturally dwarf or the... No. No, the, that, that inner, the tight internode distance when we first opened had been found on other stone fruits. And one by one, they introduced a dwarf apricot, garden annie, a dwarf this, a dwarf that, and none of them were stable. 
Uh, in other words, it was a mutation that occurred and they propagated and they developed them and introduced them and then, oh, they're reverting. You know, I had a customer buy the garden, Annie Apricot, put in her backyard and within five years, it looked just like a normal apricot. So it was that peaches and nectarines had the stability to introduce varieties where we can promise you this is only going to grow six to 12 inches a year. And in the case of the apples, you can find the rootstocks to keep them very miniature. Beyond that, you control the size of the tree. Yeah. I control everything in my garden as long yeah, well, as I'm a I mean, some people are scared to prune, and I can understand that. Um, like I, every year, someone comes in and asks me several times about a miniature, is there a dwarf persimmon? Because they're afraid persimmons are going to get so big. Well, there is. It's called Izu. It's not a dwarf. It's just a slower-growing version variant that looks a lot like the Fuyu. But, you know, persimmon once in every five years you take the center out of the tree if you want to keep it down i've seen people prune them like peaches i did a real double take when i first saw that they wanted to pick all the fruit so they prune them pretty hard and they still got plenty of persimmons could pick everything from a step ladder it can be done uh, i think there's such a lovely tree that it's a shame to do that but uh, you know just just get used to the idea that it's late summer pruning or in the case of the persimmon winter pruning because you don't want to cut them off before you've harvested the fruit is appropriate and it's the best way to get control of the size of the tree and that goes for your citrus as well you can prune them for size control so we're talking about trees here. Let's keep on going. I've got an email from Fairplay, California, yep. and this is Jane. Now, where is Fairplay? Do you know? Uh, south part of the valley. Southern part of the valley. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, dear Don and Lois, I recently heard, and not for the first time, a representative of Dave Wilson Nursery justify the move from true bare root fruit trees to reach at retail nurseries to trees individually placed into peat pots filled with something akin to potting soil. Yep. I fully understand why nurserymen might do this, but I don't like it. I can't see the roots of the trees that I'm considering buying, and I'm afraid the roots hidden in the pot will have been cut back even more than the true bare root trees. Am I wrong? First of all, I was wrong. Fair play is in El Dorado County. Sorry. <laughs> it's over there. It's back up there. Um, no, you're right. Uh, there's a lot of good reasons from the nursery standpoint for doing what you're describing. This is what happened with roses probably 20 years ago, is that most of the garden centers found that re reorganizing their whole nursery in order to heal in roses, that's the term we use for putting them into shavings or sand or whatever we were going to use, just for a four to six week selling season and then have to turn around and repot them, you know, pot them into actual potting soil, especially right when business was just going crazy. You know, middle of early spring is not a time to be doing anything other than talking to customers and selling plants. <laughs> you don't want to have your staff diverted to transplanting bare root roses that urgently need to get into pots. So they all went to that with roses a long time ago. And it is the pattern with fruit trees, especially in the places that I will say are not nurseries that sell fruit trees but more like hardware stores or stores that have a nursery division but are broader retailers. You know what I mean, you know, the bigger places. They just don't have a place for it. They don't want to have to reconfigure their sales area. Yes, you do have to prune the roots to put them in pots. I've done it many times. We do every year pot fruit trees at the end of our bare root season. And I have to show the staff how to prune them to fit them into a five gallon container. I've had wholesale growers who grow them for sale to us in the summer and when they put them into the container that holds the roots without any pruning, they use a 15-gallon pot, which needs uh, 
foot and a cubic foot and a half of soil and takes a lot of space in their nursery yard and leads to a tree that's going to probably retail over a hundred dollars. So there's not a huge market for that. So end up what ends up happening is people put them in five or seven or maybe 10 gallon containers. And yes, you do have to prune off some percentage of the roots. It is frustrating, but it makes sense from a retail standpoint. And it is the direction that a lot of these growers are going. Things that are on their own roots to a greater and greater degree, particularly the vine fruits like grapes, kiwis, berries are all coming in now in pots right away. We're not, a lot of places aren't even getting them bare root anymore. The, the companies are rooting them in greenhouses, in long narrow containers. It's great for the retailer because I get this case that I can just set on the the display table, just like any other plant that I would be selling, don't have to reconfigure my nursery. You can still, when you buy it in the pot, I know this is frustrating, you can still take it home, take it out of the pot, because it's still dormant, it hasn't started to grow. Look at those roots, do any corrective pruning that you feel is needed, anything broken or torn or anything like that. Plant it in the ground, just using the native soil as a backfill, which will establish better than if it's got that interface of non-native soil in there. You can take that pot full of potting soil they just sold you and use it for another purpose or just spread it on the ground around the tree a little bit of a mulch after you get done planting plant normally as we always suggest you know the backfill with just the soil that you took out of the hole and then you can put that stuff on the ground good news it probably has a little bit of fertilizer in it so that'll benefit the tree you know, later on in the season when it starts to grow it's an added expense but it has many advantages to the retailer and to the grower there's one big wholesaler I know who has a contract with one of the larger retail chains that you've probably been into, one of the big do-it-yourself chains, the one that's blue, not orange. And uh, their contract was originally to pot up the fruit trees and ship them in May when they were, at least in theory, rooted to the bottom of the pot and growing, beginning to grow. Several years ago, they just said, send them to us as soon as they're potted. So this wholesaler is taking bare root trees, root pruning, putting them in pots, filling with soil, and shipping them out to these stores all over California. So you're buying exactly what you're, you're describing, a, a bare root tree with a pot full of soil around it. One advantage it would have to us is it would reduce our returns because one of the most common reasons, most, most places, most retail garden centers guarantee their bare root for this reason. Sometimes they don't grow, it just happens. You know, some percentage of them, tiny percentage, but some percentage. Someone will walk in in May, it never grew, I just either give them a new one or something. Well, most common reason is that it sat with its roots drying out. That won't happen if it's in soil. So it reduces the returns. It makes it easier to market them, easier to merchandise them. It is not an advantage, I'm afraid, to the home gardener. But the effect it has of pruning those roots stunts the tree a little bit. Big deal. We're giving all kinds of ways to stump the tree. We're talking about that all the time. But I agree that it is more of an advantage to us than it is to you, unfortunately. Okay. So was that enough description of how to plant a bare root tree or did you want to go into more depth? I know earlier you had said you, you wanted to make sure people knew how to plant a, a bare root tree. Okay. I think you described it very yeah, well. Real, real quickly, the key is do it right away. I have this conversation all the time. I'm, I'd like to get my tree. I, can I hold it for a week? I said, we'd rather hold it for a week and have you come back when you've dug the hole. That was my strong preference. Get that hole ready, come on down, pick it up, go home, put it right in the hole. Plant it immediately. Yes, we'll bag things up and put shavings around them and all this stuff, but 
you know, if we don't have rain, if it's warm, if the humidity is low, those roots are drying out, it's much better to get them planted right away. So that's the first thing. Go get the tree when you're ready to plant it. Go get the tree after you've dug the hole. To plant a bare root, these are grown in sandy river bottom soils, so the roots tend to spread out. You're always pretty impressive what you get, but it's wide spreading, so dig a hole that accommodates that whole root zone without having to bend or break or cut the roots. Might as well take the advantage of getting a bare root tree, of getting the maximum root area. And uh, so that's usually about three feet across. I, I go out, I turn the soil over for an area about a three foot diameter circle. I then remove the soil deep enough to accommodate the roots of that particular tree, which is typically about 18 inches. If they're fanning out in a cone-like, you know, you know, spreading downward. I make a little cone of soil. Depends on what's going on. I backfill just with the native soil. No matter where you are, no matter how awful you think your soil is, it's much better for the roots to go right into the soil they're always going to grow in than to go into this little bathtub of fancy soil that will make an interface that's difficult for roots to penetrate. We know this from decades of research that backfilling with anything other than your native soil is actually detrimental to the tree in the long run. Fertilizer is fine, organic material is not necessary, and it's actually potentially and very likely to be somewhat harmful to the establishment of the tree. Make sure that the graft union is up a couple inches out of the ground. It's very obvious where it is, but you might ask at the nursery for them to point it out to you. And then backfill, water, settle, water, and tug it up a little bit if it settles. Don't let it sink down into a low area. Then the last step, and this is real important, is to make a little levy, a little ridge of soil in a circle around the tree, maybe two to three feet total, right, so that you can fill the basin with water when you water, so water doesn't just run off. I had a customer last year who had a bunch of trees planted and they were struggling, and he thought he was giving them number of gallons, we told him, but it wasn't going where it needed to because he hadn't made any kind of a basin. It was just running off into wherever the water wanted to go, which may or may not be where the roots are. So make a basin, fill that basin really thoroughly, water very thoroughly, only water again if it isn't raining, about once a week until it buds out. But that's the most crucial step right there is making sure that you give it proper watering while it's getting going. Every time the north wind is blowing in early March, I wake up and I go, oh, bare root trees are dying all over the valley today because they're not getting the water that they need. A good soaking. I like to water by hand the first summer, but I do find that by early summer, a lot of the trees appear to be growing out vigorously and I can put them on a drip line with whatever is nearby. In our area, about once a week watering will be fine for a newly planted bare root tree. If you're in sandier soil, you may have to do it more often. So that's going to be something you'll have to inquire about locally. Okay, so I have a question that came in and it said, what, cit what citrus are people referring to when they ask for tangerines? Yes. Well, I grew up with tangerine, a tangerine in the toe of my Christmas stocking every year. And it was a rich flavored tangerine sold in Southern California, which had seeds. So we had to go out and spit them out on the dichondra lawn there in Pasadena because granddaddy didn't want us spitting them out in the living room. And that was called Dancy, D-A-N-C-Y. And that was the classic tangerine. Um, now, my staff who posed this question said, I keep correcting them to, I keep saying Mandarin and they keep correcting me to tangerine. All right, well, it's a common name that generally, it doesn't have a specific one variety, but the most common that was sold under the name tangerine uh, is the Dancy, which was an important market 
Mandarin, orange, in California, all the way up until the 1970s, when gradually the Awari Satsuma and the other forms of Mandarin that are seedless came on the market and, and quickly displaced it because of the seedlessness, the ease of peeling. Dancy's also easy to peel. Uh, but Satsuma mandarins have taken over the market completely. Only recently has anything threatened them at all, and that's the Clementine and the other similar ones that are in the Cuties program. So tangerine just refers to the fact that it came from Tangiers, Morocco. Um, it doesn't refer to an absolute specific variety, but if someone is as old as I am and asks about it, I say, you probably mean Dancy. It's a great variety. It's very, very good flavor. It makes wonderful juice and it's easy to eat and peel. You just do have seeds, you know, one or two seeds in each segment. And that's made it reduced its market appeal. But they're all types of Mandarin orange. So Mandarin orange is a particular species in the genus Citrus. Citrus is an interesting case where a citrus is the actual botanical name of that group as well as being what we call them. So it's citrus and I can't remember which species name is on the mandarin group now. It's just one of those. So it is perfectly accurate for my staff person to call it a mandarin orange, but it's common usage. It's the dancy is the one that's usually called the tangerine. Mandarins are incredibly popular now. They've become one of the most popular fresh eating citrus partly because of the incredible marketing of the cuties program, but partly because they're so easy to grow. They're more cold hardy than other citrus. They're seedless, which people like. And there's a range of styles within the general rubric of Mandarin. There's the tangy sweet ones like Satsuma. There's the just sweet ones like Clementine. And there's even varieties that ripen a lot later. You can still find the Dancy Tangerine, but you might have to special order it because it's fallen out of the trade. Uh, you know, certainly not a commercial Tangerine or Mandarin anymore. But I have, you know, Four Winds Growers does grow it. Um, I'm probably going to get one into my mix of mandarins out there because it ripens early and it has that amazing Christmas time flavor. It's the Christmas mandarin is what I like to call it. And are all of those uh, good for juice or are there some that are better than others for juice? They're all good for fresh juice. But the reason we don't use most other citrus than the Valencia orange for juice is that citrus almost all contain a small amount to a large amount, depending on the variety, of naringin and certain other compounds that make them slightly bitter. And the bitterness will not be apparent when you fresh juice them and drink it right away. So they're great for that. You've got mandarins. I'm drinking the equivalent of like eight mandarins a day in one big glass of juice, and it's wonderful. But if you take that juice and you put it in the refrigerator for a day or two, you will notice it develops a different flavor. The, the naringin uh, becomes more tangible, if you will, you taste it. And so after a couple of days, that even that small amount of naringin will make any juice slightly bitter. Valencia oranges contain none. So it's the orange juice orange. That's why it became the mainstay of the citrus industry back in Florida where oranges are grown for juice. Uh, any other citrus can be juiced and drunk right away. Limes, sweet limes in particular are great that way. If you're ever buying from a roadside vendor in uh, Palestine or Mexico or the Mediterranean, they've got a sweet lime. It's a wonderful thing. But again, with 1% naringin, if you try and store the juice, it just develops that off flavor. True of your, your navel orange as well. So they're good for juice, juicing fresh, but not for juice for the market. They do, you'll find them in the freezer section. And apparently, if you freeze it fast enough, that m minimizes the effect. Now, people like grapefruit juice. The one citrus variety with the highest naringin content is the marsh grapefruit. But that's an acquired taste. You, you'll rarely see a kid who likes a grapefruit. 
you'll find old guys who like them because they've been drinking, smoking, and eating salty stuff their whole lives. They don't taste bitter anymore, or bitter is part of their personality. Who knows? But uh, they like grapefruits. But generally speaking, Marsh, which is a very popular, you know, standard commercial grapefruit, um, will have the highest bitterness compound. And so a lot of people find grapefruit juice very unpalatable, but many other people are not that sensitive to it. Uh, marsh grapefruits are still widely grown. One thing I will say, marsh grapefruits, and any like them, from the Rio Grande Valley of Texas or Arizona, where they have a very long, hot season, are so sweet, it masks that bitterness. And so if you grow a marsh here in Northern California, you're not going to be happy with the flavor because we have our season doesn't get hot enough early enough compared to Texas and Arizona. They're right. In Texas, you're absolutely right. You grow the best grapefruits in the world. I won't argue with you about that. If you're in Northern California, plant an Oro Blanco. It's a grapefruit pumelo hybrid, and it's much less bitter and has a really nice sweet flavor. My grandfather, who was born and raised in Oklahoma, which is not far from Texas, and they had a lot of grapefruits when he was young, he always lightly salted his grapefruit. I watched him do that with great amusement and horror, which he thought was very amusing. And he said to me, it cuts the bitterness. And he's absolutely right. In fact, I know now about the whole chemical process of salting something affects your taste receptors. You don't taste bitter. So if you get marsh grapefruits and you're finding them kind of bitter, do like Granddaddy did, sprinkle them with a little bit of salt and you'll find the flavor more palatable. So is that naranjan that's in citrus, uh, does it, how shall I put that? If I have a mandarin mm -hmm. and then I have a bowl full of mandarins and a week later I have half a bowl full of mandarins because I haven't eaten them all, are the ones I eat the second week going to be more bitter, have more naranjan, or does that only come into play when you cut them? It's when you juice them. And so it's the, the, it, most of the compound, as I understand it, is in the white membrane and in the skin membrane, in the peels. And if, if, they, if you just eat it without breaking those up particularly, which is when you chew it, it doesn't really do it, you won't get the bitterness. But if you run them through a juicer, you're kind of pulverizing that, especially if you juice down into the white rind. Most of the bitterness of a citrus is in the white part under the rind. And some of it's more pronounced than others. So if you're using a citrus for zest for a, for a recipe, you peel it and then you scrape off the white part and you'll get the flavor without the bitterness. So they stay, they stay fine in the fruit. It's when you juice them that you unfortunately release that into the, the juice itself. Just more updates on post-harvest physiology from the Davis Garden Show. <laughs> All right, let's get another question in here. Here's an email from Ashdale mm -hmm. saying, Listening to the latest episode of the Davis Garden Show, you had said that it is possible to have mandarins for seven months of the year. Yes. I was wondering which cultivars would make that possible. Thank you. I actually get this question a lot when people are buying citrus, and it's just like the same question that we get or we want to encourage people to think about when they're planting any group of fruit trees. You know, like your peaches, you don't want them all to ripen the same weekend. Um, mandarins at least hang on the tree better, but still they are distinctly seasonal. So I'm going to go through these and I'll do them fairly quickly and then we'll certainly revisit this as we get further into citrus planting season, which is more in the warm season. But uh, ripening varies by where you're listening. Um, the, in the case of mandarins in particular, a little bit of chilling improves the flavor in general. So we will be picking them first when things have gotten a little colder, but there is one exception to that. So one called Okitsu Wasi, which is just sold as a Mandarin, and it's usually sold as if it were a Satsuma, because it's a Satsuma style, peels easily, seedless, really good flavor, acid to sweetness balance, all that. Uh, wasi apparently is this Japanese word that means early. I didn't know that. 
So you can harvest those, according to one local fruit expert in Davis, in October. Even though, yeah, even though we're still feeling very summer-like in October, she was picking them and giving, you know, describing the flavor, and really rich flavor in October. Uh, the rind color is not fully developed. And remember that the skin color of a citrus is no indication of its ripeness. Uh, some of them turn color, like the Mineola tangelo turn color in January, but they aren't ripe until March or April, which leads to a lot of people thinking they're no good because they pick them when they're bright orange. So you got to sample at different times. So, so Ukitsuwasi is the first one you can harvest in October or into November. Owari Satsuma, the most popular, richest flavored mandarin of all, we start harvesting well, up, up, uphill a little bit in Newcastle area, which is famous for their mandarins. Uh, they can harvest in November. They can get them to the Thanksgiving market because they get chillier earlier, which causes the acid to shift to sugar. Uh, where, where, where I am with my trees of Owari Satsuma that I was describing earlier in the show, December is when I really start picking them, and they're at their absolute peak December and January. There's one called Dobashi Beni, which looks very much like it. Just has larger fruit. Everybody's asked me about the sumo. You've seen that giant sumo mandarin in the grocery stores. That's just another type of uh, essentially satsuma style, easy to peel, seedless. The actual name of the variety is Dekopan. Sumo is a commercial name. No, you can't get them yet. They're still not on the market as trees, but it ripens roughly with the satsumas. Then the clementines, which are the best known of the cuties program. Earliest ones, I'm picking late December, mostly in January. The more typical clementines, January to February. Most of them are ripe in February. Then Mercot, charming name, the second that's in the cuties program. So easy to peel, fairly small fruit, very sweet, seedless, late February to March. That's Mercot. Shasta Gold also ripens in March, very similar. Tango, one of the best of my mandarins, doesn't ripen until March and holds great into April. That's the third one in the cuties program that you'll see in the grocery store. So again, easy to peel, naturally seedless, and very sweet and light acidity on that one, but a good balance of sweet to acid, which is what most people like. And then the last one that people really should look for is Gold Nugget which wins taste trials all the time, tastes just like a Satsuma mandarin and doesn't even start ripening until April and holds on the tree into the summer. So that would be October into the early summer. You could actually get nine months of mandarins if you started with the Okitsuwasi, which can be a little hard to find. But if you just went from the Owari Satsuma to the Gold Nugget, you've got November through May easily, November through June or July if, uh, you know, if it doesn't get too hot. And the gold nugget holds its quality very well. So that's seven months of mandarins. Wow. <laughs> they're all easy that's, to grow. That's the thing. They're all really easy to grow. And mandarins are relatively cold hardy. I, I just hope that the listeners like citrus. I mean, if you don't like citrus, this has been a boring show. <laughs> it's, it's winter. Winter is citrus season. This is a good time to check them out in the grocery store. There's all kinds of interesting things in there. Uh, check out what you are. You know, I, I often ask people as they're coming in to talk about fruit trees, what is your family like? It's like they never actually asked around the table. You guys like persimmons? You know, don't grow one if you don't like them. <laughs> so if you really like plums, you'll get several hundred. <laughs> so, so actually the ability of a fruit to hang on the tree is a, is a real strong selling point. A lot of the citrus, most of the citrus hang on the tree really well. I'd say actually the Yawari Satsuma has the narrowest ripening period of about six to eight weeks. You get too much rain, they get kind of puffy and aren't such great quality. But others, you got a couple months compared to like your Santa Rosa plum that's your weekend, better do something with them that weekend. There are plums like Nubiana that you can pick over a four week period. So that's something to ask about. If you're a busy family and maybe peaches aren't for you, 
you know, maybe a plum that holds on the tree better or a pluot that holds on the tree better is something you'll be more satisfied with just because you don't want to travel for a weekend soccer tournament and come back and find you missed the harvest. You know, you might, you might have varieties where you can, where you can actually do that, where you can actually have a life, as we like to say. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore. And Lois Richter here at KDRT LP in Davis, California.